Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Grey Malkin Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Last week, we got to review number 28, The Whale of the Banshee, uh, with our guests Heather and Dylan and Sean Isaacs, the uh, incredible artist. We had uh, the mysterious villain group Factor 3 sent their agent, the Ogre, uh, along with kind of a captive mutant, the Banshee. It was the first appearance of Banshee to apprehend Professor X. Uh, the X-Men, with their new deputy leader, Mimic, defeated the Ogre and made a new friend in the Banshee, who we will learn this issue got sent back home to Ireland. Uh, this week, we're going to be reviewing X-Men number 29 called When Titans Clash, which was made in uh, February 1967. Uh, I am thrilled to have Mike back from Excerpts here, and we are uh, so happy to have uh, Anas from the Geek podcast and the incredible novelist uh, Tristan Palmgren here. I'll have you each introduce yourselves, uh, let us know what your pronouns are, and our question as you're introducing yourself today is, what are some impossible expectations that either others have placed on you or maybe you've placed on yourself uh, over the years? Uh, So let's begin with uh, Tristan. Uh, Hello, comics readers. My name is Tristan Palmgren. Uh, I am a novelist, at least that is one of the many hats I wear. I have about 20 of them stacked up uh, on top of each other right now. Um, I am working, I uh, have published both with Marvel and uh, independent science fiction novels um, with with, um, Aconite books and Angry Robot books, respectively. Uh, I am currently uh, living in Virginia with a partner, my cat. after having moved around just about the uh, the entire Midwest um, and finally settle, uh, settling out on the East Coast, chasing different jobs, um, pro- the impossible expectations that have been laid on me were you know, living living as a millennial in a capitalist society. Um, <laughs> before I got my first book published. Actually, while I was writing it, I was working four different jobs uh, out in the middle of nowhere, Colorado, uh, full-time job at a full-time minimum wage job at a grocery store, another part-time job as a secretary, another part-time job doing uh, uh, merchandising, and another part-time job working as the admin assistant to the county coroner. Um, all of that while I was putting together the... Um, the first draft of the first novel I got published. Um, that was a period of my life that it feels like I am still in recovery mode from. Um, I went into that with a uh, with a real, um, you know, I I can do this. I have infinite energy. Um, I've I, uh, I I have responsibilities. I am an adult. Um, it turns out that there that there are limits to that. Um, so while while I did get through that, I don't um, like I said. Like I said, it, it feels like my life has been in recovery mode ever since, and I am uh, I am grateful to be down to a single full time job as well as uh, this novel writing gig. That's incredible. You said uh, you said twenty hats. What are the other nineteen? <laughs> oh, I I've told you some of my other jobs uh, in the past. I've been um, uh, I, I've and. Well, in addition to a secretary working with county coroner, I've had about three to four different retail uh, retail jobs from beggar to uh, service desk to customer service to retail store manager. 
<laughs> That's fantastic. And uh, and comics book comic book nerd being one of those hats, I presume. Yes, although that is that has been more recent than some of my other uh, forms of nerddom. I love that. Uh, Mike, do you want to go next? Uh, sure. Um, this is a good question, and I can definitely identify with Tristan there on um, <clears throat> wearing a lot of hats. Oh, first things first, uh, my name is Mike. My pronouns are he, him, his. And uh, to answer that question, um, I think it's just going to focus a lot on um, like what I went through early on in my career uh, back when I was living in New York, and I just was just starting out. And I was in, uh, in advertising, working in advertising at the time as like a production artist. And it was my first time in the industry. I had just come from magazine publishing. And that, that you know, magazine is like a monthly deadline. So it's, you know, kind of luxurious. Um, you don't usually get deadlines that long. But then transitioning into advertising, it was just like, you know, it's a brutal industry and a lot of pressure. And I was working for a really big um, agency and like they had accounts like L'Oreal and like Heineken. So like really huge um, accounts that you couldn't really make any mistakes on or else you get in a lot of trouble. And um, your reputation is, um, you know, is, is a big thing when it comes to like working in the design industry. If you want to get more work, you have to like, you know, have a lot of great ideas and spread a lot of goodwill and make sure you deliver on time and all that stuff. And as a creative, you know, I'm always trying to do the best job possible. So I put those expectations on myself. And, you know, when I don't meet expectations like that, I kind of, I get really hard on myself and I've had to learn that, you know, it's not about, it's not about meeting other people's expectations and, you know, just to be a lot kinder to myself and, um, and, you know, take and do a lot of like, taking care of my own mental health and physical well-being um, and not letting the job, you know, dictate my life. Sure, sure. Thank you for sharing. Uh, Anas, go ahead. Um, hi, thank you, first of all, for having me. Uh, my name is Anas. I'm from the Geekable podcast, originally from uh, Damascus, Syria, but I currently live in Moscow. Um, and to answer the question, I felt like a lot of a lot of what Tristan said about how they had to work like and wear 20 different hats just to get by on a you know regular basis. I, I related to that a lot. Uh, coming from a Middle Eastern community and society, my family always like would place a lot of expectations on us and how we were always expected. There was always so much expected of us. Um, and it's something that I'm still trying to unlearn of how to like get rid of those high expectations that I place on myself and this pressure. And a lot of times I feel like I, I struggle with this kind of self-worth thing where I feel like I'm not worthy of anything good unless I've accomplished something meaningful. Um, and that stems, I think, from like, you know, growing up, we had this thing about around birthdays where if we were going to celebrate a birthday, it had had to have, like, we had had to accomplish something prominent that year in order for it to be worth celebrating. Otherwise, like, what are you celebrating for? So as an adult now, I'm still trying to unlearn those behaviors and those things that I've carried on from my family and trying to just ease myself into just being comfortable and treating myself more kindly and more, you know, gently. Um, during my university years, I also had to like work three, four different jobs at the same time just to be able to get by because I was like independent financially from a very young age. And all that pressure just accumulated. And eventually I just like, cracked it was extremely difficult so i'm also trying to like take a step back now and just 
do go with it, go with the flow is at least a little bit and try to breathe. <laughs> this is such a sobering topic to own or open a podcast with. Uh, my name is Chad. I, I use he, him pronouns. I work as a therapist in my day job. So I am regularly reviewing content with this, uh, like this with people who put this crazy amount of pressure on themselves. I'll give two quick answers to this question myself. <clears throat> Number one, I grew up in a religion that put a ton of pressure to be a particular way. And growing up gay in that religion, I, I was told that was wrong and it was something that could be fixed. And so I put like all of this like tremendous pressure on myself to change, which is, of course, a huge trauma and like very unhealthy. Since I've been out, I, I, uh, I balance a few different things. I wear a few hats myself. I've got a couple of kids and I've got a busy job. But I'm, a, I, I'm always creating something as well. I've made a documentary and I've written a book. And when you're doing things like that, it's always, uh, uh, you know, you do the thing you love on the side while you're doing the thing that you get paid for uh, to make ends meet. And I think all of us here in this, uh, in this chat can, can uh, understand what that's like a little bit. Uh, and then you hope that the product you're producing is, uh, is something that people will attach to or connect with. Uh, uh, it's... Uh, I, I I saw my documentary come out just earlier this year in 2021 after five years of, of work on something. And it's this huge moment of like, ah, but also like, okay, now what? You know, the, I, I think we all understand what that's like a little bit. <clears throat> Podcasting has been a nice change. It's a place to put my energy. And I get to collaborate with other creative professionals, which is such a wonderful thing. It's a, It's an honor to have uh, three people who clearly know what a hustle is like <laughs> as we sit here and talk together. Uh, so as we as we begin with this, uh, Tristan, let me talk to you a little bit about uh, some of your work. I uh, I am a new fan of yours. I uh, I'm not someone who reads a ton of novels. I read a lot of uh, memoirs and biographies, uh, but I've been picking up more novels recently. And I had a chance to read uh, both of your Marvel books uh, just in the last couple of months here, and they're so so good. Uh, so my first question for you is, how did you get that gig? You said you published a couple of science fiction novels. How did you end up in the comic book noveling world? Well, the two questions are related. Um, the, the answer, uh, I'm afraid, is networking. It's uh, when I um, when I got when I was first published, I made connections um, in the UK publishing industry. Um, people who put an astonishing amount of faith and trust in me um, and who I am forever grateful for, who um, transitioned from, publi uh, from publisher to publisher, and I stuck with them. Um, so my first novel is a bit of a, um, is a, bit of a hard sell right now. Um, it's it's, a, uh, it's set, in, uh, set during the Black Death, um, and for some reason, not many people want to read about a uh, a, a world changing, uh, virulent, deadly pandemic. <laughs> uh, that book came out in 2018, so it, I mean, the timing could have been worse. It could it could have been better. Um, Either that, or you're a prophet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That wasn't even the only plague in the book. Uh, so. Um, I published that book, Quietus, um, went on with its sequel. And then, um, uh, like I said, people I knew went to Aconite books when they were starting up. Um, first, they, um, I believe um, you've already had um, Carrie Harris on, who's talked to you a little bit about Aconite. Yeah, um, we had Carrie on started. a few weeks ago. She was amazing. 
Yeah, they started with uh, with um, with games. So they invited um, authors that they'd worked with in the past to make pitches for that. Um, that's where I uh, started with them. Um, and then they got the Marvel license and I gleefully rubbed my hands together and said, ooh, and sent in, uh, sent, in sent in some pitches and the 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 rest is in is in print. So you have featured two novels so far. Uh, how did you choose the characters you chose? Domino and then Outlaw. Uh, Domino is a huge fan favorite. Outlaw is a little lesser known. Uh, how did you end up with these two characters? Uh, and we'll talk about the books more specifically in a moment, of course. My choices, um, we were given choices. We didn't We didn't have um, free reign when we were making our first pitches. Things have gotten a little looser now. Um, but when I, um, when I got the chance to write for Aconite Books and for Marvel, um, I was given a list of characters that they were interested in having books about. Um, for the um, for the their Marvel heroines line, um, and I immediately glommed on to Domino, read everything I could about Domino, um, especially uh, Gail Simone's um, uh, Gail Simone's um, comics with the character. Yeah, Gail, then, Simone, Gail, Gail Simone's run is amazing. Yes. Yeah, and Outlaw was the was a prominent character in that run as well. Yes, um, these um, Domino Strays and Outlaw Relentless are both set. Um, they uh, well, they they owe more to uh, to Gail Simone's run than just than any other uh, any other comics. I tried to uh, try to, um, of course, be true to as, uh, Domino as she has appeared in the past. But if these books were really were a sequel to anything and tried to uh, tried to tell stories in the same style as um, as anything. It was Gail Simone in particular uh, and her uh, Domino miniseries and, um, oh gosh, I'm on the Hot Shot, uh, Hot Shots uh, yeah, miniseries. Yeah. Domino is a character for our, uh, for our X-Men listeners who may not be familiar. Domino is a character who has luck powers. She has kind of white skin with a black patch over her eye. Her luck uh, kicks in to affect probabilities, but primarily when she's not really focused on it, when she's kind of an adrenaline junkie, her luck kicks in at just the right moment. She's a mercenary. Uh, she's an incredibly uh, heartfelt character who a lot of people are very, very fond of, who's uh, tightly woven with Cable and X-Force. Uh, and uh, Gail Simone, who is just a tremendous force of a writer throughout uh, uh, multiple companies and multiple characters in comicdom, uh, wrote an incredible series about her. And uh, it's it's well worth picking up. Now Tristan's book tends to it uh, picks up kind of where the Gail Simone's work left off in a lot of ways. Uh, uh, Tristan, I was really surprised by a few things in your book. The the number one thing that really surprised me is the really smart way you wove together three separate timelines uh, from Domino's story. You get to see a character who is based in a tremendous amount of abandonment and childhood trauma, who has to learn how to survive on her own without being able to depend on anybody. And we get to see her not only in her youth, but uh, kind of as a younger adult and then in the present as she is adapting through this trauma uh, and this character development in three different spaces. How did you come up with this approach? Uh, and how did you find these unique voices by capturing this character uh, through three times in her life where the trauma impacted her so differently? 
Well, um, first of all, uh, thank you very much. I'm glad that uh, the shifting timelines worked for you. That oh, was one really thing when I was putting it together. Um, I was having several, what am I doing? Um, this is never going to work moments. So uh, hearing that uh, hearing that it did actually come together um, in at least one reader's imagination is very gratifying. Uh, thank you. Um, but the idea with the hero with the uh, Marvel heroines um, line of books is not only to tell a story uh, involving the characters, but to kind of pitch the character to new readers and really get at what's um, special to them and introduce that um, to people who are not familiar with the character while still telling an, uh, an entertaining story um, for people who are familiar with the character. Um, so the best way um, I thought I could do that with Domino in particular, since so much of, of her history is wrapped up in her childhood trauma is to write, um, write a story that echoed that childhood trauma and reference it heavily throughout the, uh, throughout the text. Um, present and present things a little bit differently than uh, than character than readers familiar with uh, with uh, with Domino maybe aware uh, might have been aware of um, show things that you couldn't really see in the space of a comics page and then tie that into a um, a story that's a little tighter and more intimate and closer to a character than uh, than a traditional um, Marvel superhero story uh, set in the present. There's a beautiful resiliency uh, about Domino and frankly Outlaw as well in this idea of they don't give a fuck what anybody thinks about them, but also they're really vulnerable and absolutely care what people think. Uh, and that theme of Domino kind of fighting against powerful forces, uh, she doesn't care about the outcomes of the villains so much, but she really cares about the opinions of her friends and her loved ones. Uh, it, it was a really, really beautiful story that shows uh, the consequence of action and the resiliency through trauma. Um, I, I was really surprised. Uh, I was already fond of Domino before, but I was really surprised at uh, at how how close she was to my heart after finishing your book. So when it comes to uh, the follow-up book, you chose Outlaw, which must have come from left field for a lot of people who really weren't expecting that. Outlaw is a character named Inez Temple, who is super strong, almost kind of She-Hulk-like in some ways, but she's a cowgirl. Uh, so uh, kind of from the heart of Texas, we know her primarily as a mercenary from different series, uh, most prominently from Gail Simone's book. Uh, but uh, Tristan, you uh, captured some really interesting pieces of her continuity and history as you reflected back on Agency X and her time in the 198. Uh, what appealed to you about Outlaw? Uh, getting a chance to write Outlaw in Domino Strays, um, I fell in love with her. She was uh, she's not quite she wasn't quite a comic relief character there, but she was um, in Domino Strays. She was always there to um, to poke at, to um, to poke at Domino to um, to kind of uh, get her to take things a little less seriously or get a little wrapped up less wrapped up in herself. Um, I loved her voice, and when I got the opportunity to do another book for Aconite, they were looking for something that, for something that, um, uh, in addition to just being a heroine's book, tied into the first book I had written. It's a kind of a quasi sequel. So, writing uh, another story from uh, from the perspective of Domino's posse with, um, it seemed like a like a natural fit. Um, 
one of my favorite things I have ever done in my uh, in, in my online life is um, when we re- is um, just watched everybody's reaction to uh, to the book being revealed when it came out um, because people were familiar with Outlaw, um, but there were, uh, she's one of those characters for whom there is a common consensus that that she has gone underused and has ba- and has basically been forgotten so when uh, when that book when that um when I, when I was able to go public with the book and with that gorgeous um cover uh, uh cover reveal um just reading everybody going no outlaw is getting her own book outlaw Inez temple outlaw um was tremendous fun, especially um, especially Gail Simone, um, who who has um, who, an outlaw is um, is basically is Gail Simone's creation. Um, so right, um, writing in a way that she saw as true to the character. Uh, so with Outlaw, your story about her uh, really surprised me. It was a character that I, I cared about, but not a lot. And now I want her like on a main team. You told a story in which she is a super strong person, but she's facing vulnerability because something is kind of invading her mind. And I won't give too many spoils here, but uh, the the villain or one of the villains that ends up getting revealed is the very, very creepy and often forgotten Johnny D. Uh, from back in the X Men 198 series, he is a villain who has uh, a giant gaping hole and tendrils coming out of his abdomen. And if he consumes someone's DNA, he can create a doll of them and then control them. Uh, how did you choose this very fucking creepy villain uh, for your book? Well, uh, what you just said right there makes a perfect pitch for the character. He's incredibly creepy. Um, he uh, he turns out to be incredibly villainous. And in his uh, in his appearances um, in Marvel and um, Marvel Comics, especially in the um, the the um, the X Men Civil War branch of the uh, the Civil War storyline, he's um, he just grabbed me when I was um, researching um, Outlaw and doing a um, doing a, a deep dive and basically reading everything that um, that she had ever appeared in. That story, um, it would um, in that uh, in particular um, stayed with me uh, for days after I read it. He uh, he's an overlooked villain often. Uh, who you give us a perspective of him as a a mutant who kind of grew up hating himself and now thus hates other mutants. And frankly, this is something I see in a lot of subpopulations. Speaking as a queer man, you see a lot of gay men who grow up hating gay people. Uh, and they project that outward, their own self-hatred. It's, it's, it's an interesting kind of take on the character. Uh, and you, you capture him beautifully and so creepily in, in the book, uh, juxtaposed by, by Outlaw, kind of seeking to find her strength and her path. Uh, it, it was really, really beautifully done. Um, now, we recently, uh, we recently got the announcement that you have a, a another book coming out. Uh, in the Outlaw book, we have the character of Josh Foley, or Elixir. Uh, who's a favorite among many of the uh, young X-Men fans, who is now one of the five as well. So he's quite prominent in the books. Uh, Elixir is a character who grew up uh, kind of hating mutants virulently as part of a a team called the Reavers who would go after mutants. Uh, But then he's revealed as a mutant who has both healing and kind of death powers. 
Uh, tell us your connection to uh, to Elixir and how you how you uh, or what we should be looking forward to in this coming book. Yes, uh, that uh, that was just announced, and I'm glad that that um, I could announce that in time for the uh, for in time for the podcast. That will be coming out in May. Um, it's a um, it's a book in uh, the same Aconite line as uh, as Carrie Harris's novel, um, Liberty and Justice for All, and fo- and follows many of the same characters. Um, when I was do when I was reading the Young X Men, um, Josh Foley grabbed me like he grabbed a lot of people. And while I loved um, the um, the Young Mutants or the New X Men storylines in which he appeared, there were a few things that didn't sit quite right with me. Um, he does get over his time with the re- with the um, with the Reavers awfully quickly. Um, the um, that's something that you know because of the um, the monthly comic book format. Um, just going through it in a binge like I did may make it, it seemed a lot faster than um, uh, seemed like it go, went by a lot faster than it actually did for readers at the time. Um, but I really wanted to know more about why he had gotten into the Reavers, um, how he was coping with um, with realizing that he'd been an enormous bigot, a terrible person, and how he was going to address that with all of the people who he had indirectly harmed and tell that story. Because I don't think that uh, um, that had been fully, um, fully told in the comics. In those uh, in those original appearance of his, he's a student who starts dating one of his teachers, Wolvesbane. Do we do we get to see that story in the book? No, there, uh, there's uh, no romance in this book. Uh, unfortunately, never talk um, about that sorry. again. Never bring it up again. Let's just never. Let's just completely ignore that part. The uh, the thing with continuity is we bring up the parts we even don't like sometimes. <laughs> I'm really yes. really excited, Tristan, about about the new book. Uh, and frankly, I had forgotten about the Reavers connection with uh, with Elixir. I'm I'm excited to see you explore that. Uh, Seeing with these other two characters what you can do with a character's psychology, I'm thrilled to be able to look into that. Uh, Anas and Mike, what questions do you guys have for Tristan? You want to go first, Anas? I'll let you go first if you'd like. Sure. Um, so first off, Tristan, I, I love the book. I just got to read it last week. Um, and I love the humor, first off. And I love the, the voice that you gave Domino. Um, I kind of wish you did such a great job. I kind of wish that like, you know, the, some of the writers that write her for the comics did as well of a job as you did um, voicing her in the book um, because I could read that domino all day long. And um, <clears throat> as a person uh, that's living in Chicago from Chicago, I really loved your commentary or the commentary you, you gave her in her uh, monologue about her attitude towards this city and and being a girl from Chicago, um, and like uh, like Chad, I don't really get a lot of time to read a lot of prose novels, but I found that you know, and I especially don't read novels that um, you know take comic book characters that I've been reading in the comic book format and then interpreting them into an all word format. I think for for Domino, it was really interesting because like her power isn't very visual. And so the way that it's depicted in the book and the way you rationalize it and, um, you know, assign the mechanics to it 
is really effective for this character specifically. And I, and I just want to like say, I really appreciated that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I just love, it was a great experience and uh, you know, I'm excited for the new um, Elixir novel. Now that I know that it's coming out because I I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of, uh, of the, the tone and your approach to your, uh, to these characters. Again, thank you very much for the kind words. That was one of the biggest draws um, for writing these books for me was getting a chance to spend more time with these characters in a way that they hadn't really had a chance to be show, uh, to be uh, to be showcased before. Because with a prose novel, you um, you know any medium has advantages and disadvantages, and comics are great, but there are some things that you can do in a prose novel that you don't have space for in the comic in, in comics, and unless they're really really long comics. Um, and one of those things is to spend the entire length of a book in a single character's voice. Um, I knew from the moment I started writing that, um, that Domino Strays needed to be uh, told in the first person that her voice was one of her, uh, one of her biggest draws. And I loved having the chance to just to be able to sit down and spend that much time with her. Yes, can you please write her monthly uh, comic books now, please? <laughs> I'll totally buy that series. Again, thank you. Anas? Kristen, you've gotten a chance to write, you know, two prose novels for some amazing female characters and superheroines. Domino, for one, is a fan favorite and has like a cult following behind her. Was it daunting at any point writing such a big character who has just come off the Gail Simone run that is absolutely loved by the fans? Absolutely. Um, uh, I was... Uh... For as happy as I was to uh, to announce um, to, uh, Outlaw, uh, that was after I had already gone through Domino Strays and um, having the chance to um, to go through that was great. But I don't think I've quite been uh, as nervous in the same way as I've been in my life when we introduced uh, Domino Strays and was um, showed some of it to uh, to Gail Simone um, and. Finding out that uh, um, finding out that 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 she had loved the work was um, was a professional triumph. I'm sure it was. Uh, this is the highest praise I can offer to a fellow uh, writer. I, uh, I I I do trauma for a living. Um, so often, comic books are larger than life. Right? We get caught up in the action and the crazy and the the sci-fi. Your characters felt real. They felt like they had been through trauma. They felt like they were adapting through it. It didn't feel rushed. It felt vulnerable and powerful. Uh, I was so, so impressed. Uh, uh, so the clinical social worker in me was, was very pleased uh, seeing a positive portrayal of healing from trauma and, and what resiliency actually looks like over time. Uh, so often I see people who you know, you've been through something rough as a kid. And when you grow up, you have this idea of, well, I dealt with it and now I'm moving on. But it's a permanent part of your framework. Even if you heal, you still carry whatever you've been through with you. Uh, and that was very evident in your in your writing, Tristan. I was, uh, it was really, really beautifully done. Uh, I'm so impressed. You are very kind, thank you. Uh, well, kind, but also just observant. <laughs> Uh, so uh, everybody make sure you're checking out uh, Tristan's books. They are well worth the time and effort, really beautifully done. And uh, when do we, do we have a, a, an expected release date for the Elixir book? 
Yes, that will be in May. Um, and I've also uh, I have made another book announcement. There is, I do have another book coming out later that summer um, that I'm still frantically working on. Um, but this, uh, this one I am extremely excited about. I, I'm writing Squirrel Girl. Um, yeah, Squirrel Girl Universe, a space opera starring Squirrel Girl and uh, and her friends um, taking off uh, just as heavily from uh, from Ryan North's series as uh, Domino Strays did from uh, did from um, from Gail Simone's do uh, Domino series. Squirrel Girl is literally my all-time favorite Marvel character because of Ryan North's book. I was devastated when they canceled it. So, 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 so excited. Uh, and also, what are you going to say? As long as you have, like, Nancy in it and Koi Boy, I'm all on board. I love Ryan North's Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, and I, can, I for one, cannot wait for your upcoming book. Ryan, um, got Nancy, got Mary, Chipmunk Hunk, Koi Boy, Brain Drain. Oh, I'm my gonna God. Be there. I can't I, wait. I have never been happy. I have never been happier to um, to have gotten the chance to uh, to to write a book from the outset in my life. For a moment, um, I thought you said Nancy married Chickmunk Hunk, but you were saying you were saying Nancy comma Mary comma Chickmunk Hunk. I was like, what? yes, I'm sorry, Mary um, Chickmunk uh, Chickmunk Hunk's girlfriend. Um, yeah, yeah, Mary the, Mahajan. Yeah. Yes, the uh, the the um, the super weapon. Uh, yeah, she's an expert. Uh, She's a college student who's obsessed with doomsday weapons. <laughs> yes. I, can't, I can't wait, Tristan. I'm so excited for both. Uh, what are the titles of both books? Um, it is a little bit complicated. For the, for it's um, a little, there are, this is one of those titles where there are many colons in it just because it is a <laughs> franchise. Sure. Um, I believe this one is Xavier's Institute, uh, colon, uh, Siege of X-41. Um, the novel with elixir and uh, Squirrel Girl will just be Squirrel Girl Universe. That's wonderful. There were a couple of Squirrel Girl novels written, uh, I think, last year, or the year before. Is this a tie in to those or is this more directly out of the comics? This is more directly out of the comics. OK, OK. I can't wait, Tristan. We'll have to have you back on and, uh, and talk about both of those as well. I uh, like I said, I'm I'm still frantically typing, but um, but I've <laughs> had more fun with uh, with that project than I've had in in my life, um, and I've had a, a lot of fun with these other projects. I love that so much. Well, if if you want someone to preview the pages, I will happily read your Squirrel Girl pages. <laughs> I mean, uh, having a, a preview of some of the chapter titles. <laughs> the unbeatable squirrel girl versus the ultimate English major. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm so excited. This is going to be great. Uh, the unbeatable. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, please go ahead. So I was just scanning through the doc. The unbeatable squirrel girl versus the things dreamt of by your philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yes, I, I am. I'm going a little bit off of the deep end. <laughs> no, as you should. Squirrel Girl is another book that does not dumb it down. Right? It's 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 fun and you laugh, but it's very smart and you learn things. Uh, Ryan North series is is my favorite book out of Marvel in the last twenty years. Easy. If I had to choose one, uh, yeah, I'm so I love excited. The, um, the little educational sidebars at the bottoms of those comics. Oh and my I'm, god! I am trying to duplicate that. Um, one of the things I've had in uh, in Domino Strays and. Um, 
and outlaw one of my favorite things are those uh, those footnotes at the bottom yeah um in the in the either the character's voice or the voice of a fictional editor um this is kind of as a homage to the uh, to the comic book format um where you have editorial boxes um pop in all the time uh unexpectedly but i uh I am all definitely doing that with with a squirrel girl. I'm so excited, Tristan. I can't wait. Uh, well, my favorite thing I get to sit and nerd out with people. I just read some books and now I get to talk to the author. Like this is a this is a great uh, this is a great day. Uh, so with that, let's begin our uh, review of X Men uh, number twenty nine. And Tristan, we're so happy you're you're hanging out with us to talk about old comics as well. Uh, we get to we get to take- so happy to be here. Yeah, I'm so happy. I'm so happy you're happy. <laughs> we get to take some deep dives into uh, into old '60s books. Now, X Men number twenty nine uh, comes from February nineteen sixty seven. Uh, the the writer is Roy Thomas. The artist is Warner Roth. Uh, the inker is John Tartaglione, and the editor is Stan Lee. Uh, I'm going to introduce just really quickly for uh, biography fun. Uh, John Tartaglione uh, lived from nineteen twenty one to two thousand three. Uh, He grew up in New York City during the Depression, came to adulthood during World War II. Uh, He worked as an inker for many, many years throughout the 50s, uh, beginning in the 50s, for Atlas and then Marvel Comics. Uh, But he worked for several other companies as well. He worked really prominently with uh, Dick Ayers and Gene Colan and Jim Steranko, who are all all long-term fans will will know those names as really prominent artists back then. Uh, His most famous penciling uh, work was the 1982 book, uh, called The Life of Pope John Paul II, which made him uh, internationally famous. Uh, his last work for Marvel was in Wonder Man number 29 in 1994, but he kept working on the Spider-Man newspaper strip until his uh, until his death when he was in his 80s, I believe. Uh, so there's some uh, there's some fun facts for uh, for our long-term listeners. We'd like to introduce uh, new new professionals once in a while. Let's jump in with some uh, with some thoughts on uh, the cover of X Men 29. Uh, what did you guys think of this cover? Um, I thought it was very interesting that the cover featured the mimic as a main character. Usually all the previous covers were mostly featuring the five X-Men or the villains in the main cover. And so it was really interesting to me to see that the OG five were like shoved to the left side of the panel of the cover and the mimic was taking center stage. And I thought that was a very interesting, uh, different take on the cover. Absolutely. You rarely get like one prominent character featured that way. Exactly. Uh, Mike, what did you think? Um, I think it's an interesting cover. I don't think it's very well designed. It's because um, it's got like, uh, Anas was saying, like all five X-Men are squished to the very left um, spine, almost the spine of the book. But then above them is that little like, you know, Marvel Comics group like chip where it's got them the five again. So there's like 10 X-Men on one side of the book. And then this, and then the mimic who's not even an X-Man gets the feature for the entire cover. So it's, it's quirky. Uh, Tristan, did you have any thoughts? I, um, this kind of seemed like a pretty bland cover to be honest. Uh, no, ins- <laughs> no insult intended to, uh, for, um, for the people who worked very hard on this uh, 60 years ago. Um, but I, it did not strike me very much. So Roy Thomas has been playing with the format of the book a little bit in the last few issues. We had a couple of issues uh, uh, where they went to uh, fight El Tigre and Kukulkan, where Gene was not really in it. Angel's been out for a minute because he was injured. 
the mimic has been brought back in the last couple of issues as the deputy leader. Uh, and this, uh, as we will see, spoilers, but they're, you know, 50 years old plus. Uh, this will be Mimic's last issue with the X-Men, even though he's kind of the first new team member. Now, Tristan, is the Mimic a character you were familiar with before this? The name seemed familiar, but not in a way um, I could immediately recall without looking him up. That said, uh, this comic, like um, like most comics, um, wrote in such a way as to grab new readers um, with um, with every issue. So I didn't I didn't have any problems jumping in. Sure. Now, there's a there's really fun stuff back here where we get to see the shared universe. The super adaptoid had only been featured in three issues of the Captain America book prior to this uh, Tales Tales of Suspense, I believe. Uh, might have been Tales to Astonish. Uh, I know my Marvel, but I'd have to look that part up. Uh, he believes at the end of that that he has uh, killed Captain America, and we get to see the character that has adapted all of the X Men's powers. Uh, fighting the character that's adapted all of the uh, all of the Avengers powers. All we need now is the Super Scroll, who has all the Fantastic Four's powers, so we could have a big three way brawl. Uh, uh, Anas, do you want to open the book for us? Sure thing. Um, so the title of this issue is "When Titans Clash," and it opens up on like a winter day in December. Calvin, uh, who is the mimic, and the X Men are all together. They're about to go ice skating, and the, the mimic makes like a sly comment about how this is what the X-Men are up to when they're not fighting other freaks. And in this issue, he seems to be making a lot of comments and how he's, he kind of feels superior to the other X-Men just because he's not a mutant. Uh, Bobby, as always, is like taking center stage of the page. He's ready to dive in. And Scott is seen like standing to the side, observing Warren and Jean chatting. And Warren is helping Jean put on her skates. Um... Moving on to the next page, Bobby immediately slips on the ice and falls. Hank tries to demonstrate how to properly skate and then immediately goes up going way too fast. Uh, we see an interesting moment with Warren and Jean. He holds her hands and he's asking her if, she's if, he's, if she still knows how to couple skate. And Scott is just like watching them from the side, um, mentioning that he left his skate back in his room. But it is then revealed that Scott left his skates behind on purpose because there is something that he must do alone. This is shown in a thought bubble. Uh, Scott thinks about how envious he is of Warren because he always wears, uh, he, he just can hide his powers easily with just a couple of straps. And Scott is unable to do so because his powers are too powerful and he has to always wear his glasses. Um, he recalls a few weeks ago that he struck Warren on accident with his blast, but he had weakened his beam subconsciously. And he sees this as maybe he is beginning to control his beams mentally to some extent, and he wants to test out that theory, which is his, like, side mission. Um, after this, Scott removes his glasses in an attempt to control his beams, but they, as, as predicted, power, like, fire just as powerfully as always. And he's like grief stricken. He's super sad. He talks about how he's always believed that there must have been a higher purpose to why he has these awesome powers that he describes them. Uh, but then he begins to think that maybe he's just the victim of fate and that this fate is keeping him from his beloved Jean. And then he says like, no, this is not going to happen. I'm not going to let anything stop me from being with my loved one. At that moment, his blast strikes a, a mountain causing a nearby rock slide. And he, he's like, he rushes out of the way. He tells himself that this incident was a reminder that he must never lose his temper and thanks his lucky stars that no one was around to get be harmed. However, the avalanche hits the super adaptoid secret lair, which is in a series of tunnels used by the British during the Revolutionary War to store ammunition. And he is alarmed by the rumbling of the avalanche and 
wakes up to see who is the intruder or who is bothering him, basically. Beautiful work. What were some of your thoughts on these pages? What stood out to you? Definitely the standout to me was the con constant uh, coming back to Gene and Scott. They're always, you know, their relationship has had lots of turbulence. And in the beginning opening issues of the original X-Men, Gene was always kind of like to the side between Warren and Scott and Bobby and Hank. And they're always all after her. And Scott has never to this point taken his shot and went after Gene. And I thought that was an interesting development to see his thoughts on how he really hates his powers and he sees them as a curse mostly because of how powerful he is and how he feels like he doesn't deserve to be with Gene because of his powers. Yeah. Scott Warren and Hank are all after Gene, but Bobby's just after Warren. <laughs> <laughs> Gene Which is wearing... way, way decades later. Yeah, yeah. We have a while before we uh, learned that. Gene is wearing the shortest green skirt uh, to ice skate. In December. Which I'm kind of wondering if it's a... It's, Gene has a famous costume that's like a green mini dress that people either love or hate. <laughs> this is almost like a like a prequel to her green mini dress. Uh, it's so impractical. My legs would be freezing. She wasn't uh, even wearing tights or anything. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. We also see Bobby so excited to go skate. Uh, and as he does, he he uh, he references uh, Gangway, Carol Heiss, the Iceman cometh. We get two pop culture references here. Carol Heiss is an old uh, uh, Olympic figure skating champion, I think from around the late 50s to early 60s. And the Iceman cometh is an old play that they reference in the books a couple of times. Uh, Tristan, what were some of your thoughts on these early pages? I am transfixed by uh, by Bobby Stare on page two. I cannot stop looking at it. This is uh, it's like a perfect reaction image. Um, how I feel starting a new project um, before I immediately crash uh, <laughs> crash into the ice and slip. Um, I love the um, I love the language uh, on display here. The um, too bad dad is going to is going to uh, stick with me for a while um and can i also just say something about the delightful rendering of uh, of scott's hair uh and sweater mm -hmm. there's a lot of love put into that hair and sweater scott's looking good <laughs> the uh the idea of uh uh well iceman let me talk about iceman for just a second iceman is often kind of the comic relief along with beast he's in the background He's really only had kind of one breakout storyline in the original books prior to this. And that's when he was wounded. And then he got a, kind of got to come save the day. If you guys remember that issue uh, way back where Magneto attacks the mansion, Iceman's in the hospital and he has to rush to kind of help save the team. In that. this issue, it, it, what was that? I do remember that. Yes. It, so in this issue, we get to see Iceman on page one, front and center. He is right in the middle, and he's the most featured character in this book, along with Mimic. Uh, it's nice to see him shine a little bit. We get to see... Although, it, oh, a little foreshadowing for later. It's also um, interesting to see just how poorly the others treat him later. Yeah, yeah the gaslighting never stops. No. <laughs> Uh, we also get to see uh, some really strong characterization of Cyclops here. Cyclops is often putting a ton of pressure on himself, which is uh, the reason we asked the question we did earlier today. He uh, He's growing more determined. He's tired of hiding. He's tired of feeling like he's the victim of his powers. And he really, really wants to reach out to Gene, but he's really afraid of, of what that will mean. 
so for him trying to cut loose and control his powers uh, and then have it kind of land on him that he can't is just a devastating thing uh, uh, to, to witness uh, for a character we care about a lot. Uh, Mike, what, what were some of your thoughts on Cyclops here? Um, I agree. This, you know, I, like I said, when I was on the podcast last, the, these are the first, this is the first time I'm reading these books. So I'm starting to see like all the seeding ground placed for these characters that we're familiar with now. And um, it was really significant to see Cyclops going through like just um, this emotional torture that he puts himself through and um, just uh, seeing it emphasized and understanding where he came from and like his emotional state leading to the, the man that he is now all those years later. Um, but um, so that was my impression of Cyclops. I just want to also give my impression of Bobby. And I just think, you know, I was one of those people that started reading the X-Men in the 90s when Jim Lee put out his number one. And so I didn't know Bobby as well. And a lot of people put that queer um, subtext onto him that I wasn't familiar with. And when I read this, it's like, I am seeing all of it. Like for anyone that denies that this was a thing with him um, ever, they should definitely go back to these books in the 60s. And it's a real eye opener. I'm not saying that you have to be, a, that, you know, being a fan of figure skating makes you gay, but I'm just saying he's not like into any of the traditionally masculine interests that like his, his you know, co his teammates are, are about. X-Men number one, page one, the first image we get of Iceman is him twirling around his own ice pole. <laughs> this is a running theme. And yeah, it, it really does stand out. It, it's not a forced story for him to be queer at all. Uh, when we get to see the super adaptoid kind of unearthed, and this is something I love about old comics, Cyclops uh, is at a random pond in the woods and, and shoots a blast. But, uh, you know, of course, the supervillain is hiding in the nearby tunnels. Uh, but we get to see this kind of impressive image of a very weirdly designed super adaptoid sitting kind of king style in his throne in his little cave. Uh, he has the powers of Giant Man, who was known as Goliath often back then. Uh, so he's 10 feet tall. He's got the powers of the Wasp. So he's got big wings. Uh, he's got the powers of Hawkeye. So he's got Hawkeye's mask and kind of a quiver of arrows on his back. And uh, although his bow has been destroyed in his previous appearance, and then he most prominently looks like Captain America. He's got the big shield. Uh, he's got kind of the chainmail vest, but it's all in green and white. He's a sentient robot who is both stuck in his programming and also really wanting to kind of control the planet at the same time. Uh, what did you guys think of the super adaptoid, uh, his characterization? And, and I guess we should say them. This is a non-gendered character, I would say. Uh, what would you think of their characterization and kind of motivations? Uh, and, and what did you think of them as a villain? You know, those small moments and stories um, you can just that you feel like you can just take and write an entirely new story just based off that one single moment or write an entire book off of it. Um, seeing the super adaptoid on page four, I really want to know what he's been doing there all this time. Why is he there? Um, did he, did he just slink off here to, to brood? What was he brooding about? It's a staycation. Did he go into, did, yeah, relatable. Yeah, just Hashtag hanging out in his cave. He just needs to chill. Uh, I mean, did he go into sleep mode? Uh, the, the throne has uh, his spider webs on it. So was the throne there all along? It doesn't seem like it's something that would have been built into uh, into the the old British tunnels 
from the Revolutionary War. Did he build it himself? Why? It is, what, what is going on there? There are so many questions that I have to know the answers to. Uh, and Austin, Mike, what did you think of the super adaptoid? I mean, for a 60s villain, he's as three-dimensional as you would expect a one-off villain to be, I guess. He ha his motivations are just that he wants to, A, kill Captain America, which he believes he's accomplished. So he's kind of like relishing in his victory slash hibernating because we see him activating his memory after he was disturbed. And then B, he wants to replicate and make more versions of himself so he can take over the world because, you know, obviously all, they all, all the robots want to take over the world. So I don't know, I, you know, as a villain, he's not the most compelling to me from what we've encountered in the previous 29 issues up to this point. I think there have been better villains in my opinion especially that they've introduced the Juggernaut, they've introduced Magneto, even like the freaking Stranger is a more compelling villain in my opinion. <laughs> I uh, I am fond of the Super Adaptoid. I, I think there's that kind of storyline that we get to see more, more realized with the vision as an example of, you know, where do I fit? What is my purpose? Uh, he's created by AIM or Advanced Idea Mechanics. Uh, and I think there was like a little fragment of the cosmic cube used in his creation. There's been stories in the future of him trying to achieve godhood. Uh, there's also been stories where he's been replicated to an entire race of creatures. Uh, uh, there's, there's a lot of stories that come out of this idea of him replicating. Now, he does have the additional talents we learn here of if someone is willing to submit, he can turn them into a template or a robot form that he can then control. Uh, so he one of his goals here, as he becomes aware of the X-Men, is to try to turn them into copies of himself in his eventually bid to kind of rule the entire planet. It's kind of wonky uh, villain motivation in the issue. You, you wonder a little bit if maybe his program is... Uh, has, has gone offline a little bit. Maybe that's why he sat on the throne so long, Tristan. <laughs> he was... there, there, there's a story there. There's, there's a novel there. So uh, we, uh, we see this blast kind of waking him up. He's reminding himself on the purpose of, of his purpose to conquer the world, uh, quote, end quote. Uh, now we jump back to the X-Men. Uh, Bobby is putting skates on and he's trying so hard to, to skate and have a good time, but he immediately just keeps falling on his ass uh, over and over again. When the others are done skating, he decides to stay behind. And there's something so beautiful in this moment where he takes his skates off, he literally takes his clothes off, and he ices up and then just twirls on the ice, and he's incredible. It's almost like, uh, and again, uh, queer identity, right? I can let my mask down, I can just be as gay or as queer or as relaxed in my skin as I want to be, and I uh, I don't know. I want to play the song Dancing Queen as the as the track for him dancing out on the ice. There's something so beautiful about his ability to remove the mask and just be himself. Uh, so with the skates, he's clumsy, but when you take them off and he is free and uh, and 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 kind of just beautifully existing in his skin right here. Uh, Tristan, do you have thoughts on these these scenes with Bobby here? Oh, there's no readable metaphors in that at all, um, particularly <laughs> not. Um, seen through uh, seen through 2021 eyes the um the coloring on pages six and seven when he finally when he uh becomes his iceman form again are all the tra are all the trans flag colors it really Which, is actually is, yes it's um it's very stretched one it's um one of these moments that is not even really subtext this is just text yeah 
it's uh, it's beautiful. And you uh, you wonder if that was the writer's intentions at the time. I, I don't think it was. I, yeah, I sincerely doubt it. But, you know, um, I, I, I subscribe to the author is dead um, uh, <laughs> way of reading things. This is what the page is to us today. I it's actually, very, I actually think Roy Thomas is still alive. I think he's in his 80s. Uh, I didn't mean, I didn't, well, I didn't mean literally. No, no, but I'm just, I'm reflecting on that. Stan Lee is deceased, but I think Roy Thomas is actually still alive. Uh, I wonder if he's been asked. <laughs> uh, so we see the super adaptoid approaching Iceman on the ice. Uh, he wants to kind of test his limits a little bit. Iceman kind of freezes him over and then runs. And uh, the super adaptoid is going to follow him back to the mansion uh, so he can see where the other uh, X-Men are. When Iceman gets back to his friends, uh, he is panicked because he sees this, this character, this 10-foot-tall robot that's attacked him. And he tries to tell the other X-Men what has happened and how do they react in us. So they basically gaslight him until he believes that he may have been daydreaming. And going back a bit, I just wanted to comment that I found it very interesting that despite Bobby slipping and falling in front of his teammates and Hank pestering him about it, he didn't like he didn't take his clothes off and ice up to just show off that he knows how to skate. He waited until everyone was gone, until he was comfortable to be in his own skin again by himself, which I think is very, very crucial here in this moment. Um, but yeah, going back, he goes back to the mansion and everyone's immediately like, oh no, there you can't have seen a 10 foot robot, even though we just fought Sentinels like two issues ago. <laughs> so they, just, they always take him, you know, they don't take him seriously, honestly, and they just gaslight him. And then he hopes that Scott will believe him because he must have seen the robot on his way back. But Scott is always like, nope, I didn't see anything. I just found your clothes that you have abandoned. Uh, not only not only that, but the the X Men don't believe him. They're very quick to dismiss him. But he's mm -hmm. also he's also very quick to question himself. When yeah. they say we don't believe you, he goes, "Oh well, yeah, well maybe I just daydream was daydreaming then." Uh, which there's something so sad about that for me. Like I just want to give him a big hug. Uh, it, it breaks my heart a little bit. Uh, any something. Any thoughts There's on something very familiar about it too. Um, kind of when you're you're, you're transitioning to uh, to coming out of your uh, coming out of the closet or um, coming to terms with uh, with your identity, uh, it's not always a smooth transition or it's not a straight it's not a straight line. You can go back and forth, wobble over the line, doubt yourself and what you're really feeling. Uh, and I, th I think there's some translation too uh, as well. Let's say we have a, a woman who's being abused by her husband and she observes something about him, you know, Hey, are you upset today? He says, no, I'm not upset. I didn't do that. Or I didn't say that. And she's like, Oh, you're, you're right, dear. There's almost a, a, a downplay of ourselves in order to keep the peace with the people who yes. are us sometimes. Uh, it's really sad. And we have to add to the psychology of all this professor X being the telepathy is knows that Bobby is gay, even if the others don't know he does. Uh, and Bobby's just suffering there. It's really sad to watch. Also, Bobby's like the youngest one. So he's always trying like no one takes him seriously because he's just a baby. Right. So he's always got that disadvantage to his teammates, um, always having to prove himself. And I love that, like at the end of the scene, Warren's just like, not listening to him anymore because like i i want to take gene i just want to try to get laid so whatever you're saying i just you know i don't even want to hear it now later bobby uh in the latest issue of marauders for our current readers he uh he has recently helped terraform a planet which is amazing he's in a mega mutant 
Uh, we also see get, get to see him grow to like a hundred feet tall in ice form and battle a dragon. And uh, it's we get to see a lot more of Iceman doing great things with his powers and being much more comfortable in his skin. He's in a s- seemingly healthy relationship with Christian Frost. Uh, it's it's uh, it's it's a new side of the character. It's uh, it's really nice to see. Uh, Mike, do you want to take over for us on uh, page nine? Sure. So um, starting on page nine, uh, the professor and the team, they are going to start a training program or a training um, session with the Mimic uh, to test out, you know, their capabilities. And so the team starts and Mimic's just really um, antagonistic the whole time. He swoops in. Um, everyone's just kind of like bracing himself for him. He lands and um, Cyclops is just, you know, he's he's um, just not having it. He tells him that he's gone too far. The professor's trying to keep things cool. The mimic, um, you know, he's all about just getting under the X-Men's skin. So he, he, you know, he wants to shut Cyclops up and he ices up his hand and he um, borrows Bobby's power and, you know, pretty much pelts him in the face with an ice, uh, ice, ball and um which is really mean and you know cyclops is like trying to you know just keep it together and and be mature and and not strike back but in the meantime his teammates are like oh no you didn't and they're all like ready to rumble and bobby ices up like a big club and warren's about ready to take him and beast joins in and the professor's just like oh man i just you know, I probably shouldn't interfere. They have to learn how to deal with them with each other themselves. So he lets this continue. And then, so the beast um, goes at him first, mimic, immediately mimics hit, uh, the beast powers. You see, he's got like huge feet now, um, along with Angel's wings. And as the beast goes low, the mimic jumps up, which gives Angel the advantage to grab him from above and grab him by his wings and hold him, uh, hold him in place, which uh, gives Bobby an opening to, um, to chuck his ice club at him. Um, and, you know, Bobby's trying to be careful, but he actually formed this ice club to be really light so that when it struck Mimic, um, it would just shatter into little pieces. But Mimic was prepared for that and in turn uses Gene's telepathic power or telekinetic powers to redirect Bobby's ice club to um, hit Warren, who's still trying to hold on to him in midair. And the next page shows Cyclops um, just has had enough, and he goes to uh, end things with Mimic, and he fires off his optic blast. But the Mimic himself uh, also has optic blasts, and that's when um, the professor, he decides to step in, and he's like, I've had enough, you guys. can't do this anymore. Uh, Mimic, you're just a jerk. You can't be here anymore. And he pretty much um, takes this moment to expel Mimic from the school and tell, tells him that it's just not going to work out. And, um, you know, they, the professor's all, uh, you know, he's really got another priority in his mind where he can't handle any of his bullshit and he just wants the kids to stop. And so he could go off and do his, his secret, um, you know, side mission of, uh, or planning for what, what he's going to do with uh with the factor three um and i think oh yeah the next page so the kids meanwhile while the professor's off doing his his planning the kids are playing football now and it's kind of sad because like you know gene just kind of wants to play as well with the boys she wants uh cyclops to throw the football at her um and 
you know, when he does throw the football, all of a sudden that uh, that daydream that Bobby had earlier in the form of um, uh, this big green dude, um, <laughs> he just he shows up and you know proves to the X Men that Bobby wasn't imagining things, and um, and that that pretty much kicks off the battle uh, with the Adaptoid, and you know he goes to grab Gene, of course, Gene's in peril, so Cyclops jumps in. And he uh, he blasts him with his optic blasts, but the adaptoid uh, fends off the blast with his new shield, his 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 green shield, his all green shield. Uh, I am gonna take a step back really quickly before I ask for your response. On page eight, there was a moment I overlooked very quickly. Uh, Iceman is returning to the team, and the super adaptoids following him. Uh, because giant chunks of Iceman's ice slide have broken off and fallen to the ground, which if you ever wondered what happened to Iceman's ice slide, <laughs> apparently that's what takes place, which in a city, which in a city would be very dangerous, I feel like. Uh, uh, when we get to uh, uh, page nine and we see that very close up of Professor X, look how beautiful his eyes and eyebrows yes. are. Yes, he's he great lashes. Time. I made a special note just about his eyelashes. Yeah. <laughs> he is stunning. He is ready uh, to put on his drag makeup. Uh, <laughs> Those cheekbones too. They're they're conducive to drag makeup. Yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe, I don't know. Maybe this is where they got the inspiration for Cassandra Nova. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, Professor X's interactions with the team first. Did you guys have thoughts on, uh, his his kind of impatience, uh, uh, for, first kind of tolerance and push, but then kind of impatience, and then finally firing the mimic, uh, so he can go prepare for this mysterious team factor three. What did you think about Professor X on these pages? Um, well, I thought there was obvious favoritism towards his original X Men. Obviously, in the beginning, when the mimic and Scott are exchanging words, he goes like, "Oh, I'm gonna keep myself to the side. I'm not gonna interfere." But then, as soon as a fight breaks out, he sides entirely with the X-Men and goes as far as to fire the Mimic from the, the team, even though he was the deputy chief at that point. So it really, it just shows how much he cares, I guess, in a certain way, sort of way to, you know, for his X-Men and favors them over this new member that just showed up. But after all, you know, what can we say except Professor Xavier is a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> we had uh, our guest Gabriela Gabero recently point out that the wheelchair he's in in these issues is like a wheelchair out of like the 1890s. Uh, in the 60s, there was much more advanced technology, even motorized wheelchairs. But you see this old wicker chair that he sits in and you just know that's a character choice. <laughs> uh, uh, Tristan, did you enjoy Professor X here? Uh, yes, albeit I'm not certain in the way that I was intended to uh, in- enjoy him first of all with the eyelashes which we already <laughs> mentioned um but i'm also i was also um i also greatly enjoyed just how spectacularly useless he was here well I, he's worse than useless he makes the wrong decision at seemingly every interval so on page 10 he's being neutral, stepping back, saying the six of them must settle this among themselves and then just lets them beat the heck out of each other for several pages onto a full panel before finally before finally stepping in and um, saying, whoops, actually, no, I'm going to interfere. He also goes in the mansion in a minute to, to work and then the robot attacks and the X-Men are like in the fight for their lives, but he never comes back out. 
Uh, is he unaware of their fight? Like, is he ignoring their thoughts? Has he shut his powers down? He never, <laughs> there's a giant fight happening on his lawn and he, he never comes outside to see what's happening. He's just like, those damn kids, I can't get a moment to myself. <laughs> he waits until after they've beaten each other up um, <laughs> using deadly force, um, intervenes, uh, makes things even more emotionally charged by firing the mimic and then just wanders off and leaves them all alone. Now, on page 11 in his lab, we see him in front of a door that was introduced in a previous issue. Uh, we've in, He's indicated that his greatest shame lies behind this door. Uh, do you guys have any idea what might be behind the door? Any guesses? It's a it's a person. I'll tell you that much. Uh, I'm guessing it's not Legion. It's not Legion. We don't see Legion for a long time. Yeah, yeah, because I know Legion doesn't show up until like way after. Well, this this will be a spoiler to our li- listeners who have not read these books. But uh, Juggernaut is behind the door. Uh, oh, strapped down to a chair uh, in a coma, kind of. And we'll see him in a few more issues, uh, which is which is fascinating. Uh, we're, we're uh, our, our listeners know as well, we're preparing a, a trial for the Juggernaut coming up. We're going to uh, learn a lot about him and his character shortly. Uh, Foreshadowing we... in more than one sense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, before we move forward, the, the Mimic's characterization, he's angry. He's picking fights. He refuses to back down. Future uh, writers will really take the storyline uh, of him being bipolar uh, to heart. He has big manic episodes and big depressive episodes, and sometimes his powers fluctuate in uh, relation to his mood. Uh, what were some of your thoughts on on the mimic here? Uh, we get more of him to come in a minute, of course, but I, I think his mastery of the X-Men's powers is really impressive, actually, as he fights back without using more force than he has to. What did you guys think of the mimic here? I think where he excels at you know, being a master at their powers better than the X-Men themselves. Um, in contrast, I think that, you know, his biggest struggles seem to be his internal um, inferiority complex because, you know, he they aren't his powers. They're, and, you know, the nature of, of the mimic is to imitate other genuine things. So that seems to, you know, feed into his his psyche and the fact that he feels like he's not almost like an, a not a real person yeah uh tristan did you have any thoughts there uh i don't i don't know that i read it as um using uh as much force as he has to since he's the one who who picks the fight with that kind of with that snowball to the face Fair. um it's just kind of um an unrepentant jerk here, um, which you know made made his turn uh, later in the book. Uh, spoilers for what we're going to discuss in a few minutes. Um, a little less than believable for me, but I had not uh, I had not looked at it through the through the uh, the lens of uh, bipolar diagnosis. In Mimic's first appearance, his first panel on a page, uh, which we reviewed a while back. He storms into a library and he's angry at this girl that he asked out for flirting with another guy. And he's just yelling at her. Like that's, that's kind of where he begins. He's a very angry character overall, which makes Professor X's choice of him as the deputy leader kind of surprising. Uh, we also on these pages get a couple pop culture references. There's mentions of both Sean Connery and Buck Rogers, uh, which is kind of fun. And we see the super adaptoid calling Gene. He's the, he's the one that does it this time. He, uh, he says, allow me to demonstrate on this female. Someone always calls her the female with the girl. Do you think he's naturally sexist or was he programmed that way? 
I probably mimicked it. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, go, go ahead, Tristan. I was just going to uh, say, you probably mimicked it from the Avengers. <laughs> or the X-Men. <laughs> I, I learned it from you, Dad. <laughs> uh, so uh, on page 13, we see the X-Men going to kind of, uh, in, a, in a little bit of a, an epic fight with the Mimic, but he kind of wins relatively quickly. Uh, Angel flies at him, Beast kicks him, Iceman surrounds him with ice. Uh, but he grabs one of Hawkeye's arrows or one of his generated arrows and knocks them all out with, uh, with gas. They are helpless uh, and uh, kind of fall over, except for the Mimic, who's standing off to the sidelines. And also, of course, Professor X, who's hiding inside. <laughs> um, Ignoring them. <laughs> uh, Mimic then kind of decides he's going to ally with, uh, with the Super Adaptoid. He, he has his own... His has his has own thoughts, and uh, again, a pop culture reference. He refers to in his thoughts the super adaptoid as a monsters reject. Uh, monsters is a classic television show about a family of monsters, uh, but he he kind of agrees to submit to the super adaptoid's uh, uh, transformation process, which he does with uh, something that doesn't exist in real life called selectric rays. Uh, but he takes a pantographic scan. Does anybody know the word pantograph? I had to look this up. I don't. It's an instrument that copies things at scale. So I presume <laughs> used by, uh, by architects and other people who do design. Uh, so, so the super adaptoid has to take a pantographic scan of the mimic. Uh, he can only transform someone if they submit and the mimic has submitted at least until uh, Cyclops helps the mimic realize that he's going to be turned into a quote robot slave if he does submit. Were you guys surprised by Mimic's uh, choice to ally with the super adaptoid here or to submit to him? Well, first of all, I I read it as Mimic trying to kind of playing like double agent. I didn't really see it as him immediately wanting to actually ally himself with the super adaptoid. But what really like interests me is that. Consent was very important to the super adaptoid, and he would not just transform anyone without their consent or without their will. They have to be willing to submit to, for them to be transformed, which is very interesting. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't do a very good job of selling the process, though. <laughs> he will gas them and knock them unconscious, but still ask for consent. And attack them and call them names, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> The uh, the mimic tries to adapt the super adaptoid's powers, which of course, well, well, I can't say of course, it's comic books, but which doesn't work, and he uh, presumes it's because the super adaptoid is an artificial being. Uh, but he does make the choice instead to fight back, to uh, to uh, attack the super adaptoid, and then kind of an epic fight breaks out uh, where we get to see the mimic not only kind of front and center, but we get to see the artists. Uh, as you look through pages 16 through 19 and 20, uh, you get to see the artist use a different panel style. We are, we're very dense with like six and seven layer panels back then, but they sort of break the format here as the, the Mimic and the Super Adaptoid get into this uh, kind of uh, epic fight. Uh, uh, arrows are thrown and shields are thrown and uh, and the Super Adaptoid's using all of the powers of the Avengers against the Mimic. Uh, Tristan, will you tell us about the, the fight that follows? Yeah, starting on page uh, seven, on, are we on page 16 or 17? 17, yeah. Well, after the uh, the mimic uh, decides that, no, he's not he's not down with uh, this being turned into a, um, a template for the super adaptoid. After all, he and the, um, 
Yeah, uh, he he and the super adaptoid kind of get into it, and in what I can only um, describe as if Marvel if Marvel Comics was a verb, um, you would say he would the, they Marvel Comics their way through the next fight. There's lots of 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 back and forth. I had to read these pages several times to um, just to get um, get get all of the back and forths uh, straight in my head. Um, so the uh, the mimic dodges out, uh, uh, dodges away from the Captain America shield that the super adaptoid tosses at him, leaps into the sky, and we then take the action airborne. Um, the mimic, uh, using Angel's powers to fly while uh, the super adaptoid uses the wasps, and we get we move really high up into the air, kind of um, an indeterminate distance uh in one of the uh, the panels on page 18 you can almost see the um the curve of the earth in the, um in the back um in the background and there are all kinds of tiny miscellaneous buildings below um so while the uh while the super adaptoid and the mimic are going back and forth the super adaptoid eventually gets the uh, the upper hand spinning the mimic uh round and round in a circle until the until the mimic almost blacks out um, and is getting ready to um, make his pantographic tracing of the mimic <laughs> and so assume all of the powers of the X-Men when uh, the mimic pulls another power out from underneath his hat, um, this being uh, the uh, a power taken from Professor X to plant a suggestion into the adaptoid's mind um, and make him hurl the um, hurl the mimic uh, safely out of the um, safely for now at least out of the way while the um, the X Men uh, down below are just getting back onto their feet and observing uh, what's going on although not yet not yet intervening. The it's a pretty epic battle. Uh, Mar they they Marvel comics their way through it. I love that. I actually think it's pretty fantastic. I think the the the, the powers are used in unique ways. Uh, the stakes feel kind of high for a few pages there. We don't often see just kind of a one on one fight like this in the early X Men books. Uh, and and also, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Tristan. I was just going to add. There are an awful lot of powers on display. They did think about how uh, how to use each one of these. Uh, well, and then the, the thing that wins the fight is Mimic's forgotten power. He's also got Professor X's uh, telepathy. So he plants the suggestion in the super adaptoid's mind. So apparently the super adaptoid is sentient enough to receive a telepathic uh, prompt from a human brain. Uh, and that's what kind of uh, convinces the super adaptoid to try to, to try to take his powers, which results in the defeat. And uh, what were your thoughts on this fight? I thought it was a very, as you said, it's a very visual fight. I thought the layout of the panels was very interesting. Um, they really tried to change it up and try to give space and room because the battle does take place at some point in the sky. And when the mimic flies off and the, the super adaptoid follows him using wasp's wings, they have this little battle in the sky. And I thought it was very interesting to see how they really tried to give it space for them to breathe, for the characters to breathe. Uh, you know, I don't understand how the powers of the adaptoid are not be able, not able to be mimicked by the mimic because he's not human enough, but somehow his mind is sentient enough to receive uh, telepathic signals from the mimic. But, you know, I guess it works. It's a comic book. I'm not here to question it. <laughs> As you said, it's, a, it's an epic battle, I guess. Uh, this is a fun fact. I'll just get you guys' reaction to this really quickly. Uh, my podcast listeners will know this already. 
But when the X-Men after X-Men number eight, continuity-wise, travel into the future, uh, Angel, teenage Angel, stuck in the future for a while, and he goes through the Black Vortex and gets wings of fire. His feather wings are gone. And when they're going to send him back to the past so they can, you know, keep the timeline sane or whatever, uh, they, they cut off of his fire wings and graft the mimic's copy of his wings onto his back. So when Angel arrives back in X-Men number eight, he's actually got the Mimic's wings on his back. So then when the Mimic later meets the Angel and takes his wings, he's adapting his own wings from the future. Uh, wow. Any reactions to that bizarre little nugget? God, I love comic books. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, uh, Mike, what do you think about the fate of the super adaptoid here? He's uh, reverted back into his original form. His powers are gone and he lands in the water with a splunch sound effect. Yeah, you know, I uh, I don't really have many thoughts about the super adaptoid. I don't know where he goes after this. I'm just kind of glad that he's gone. <laughs> um <laughs> I thought I thought that whole fight with the mimic was 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 really interesting. Like you said, like you know, they even got their own like um, on page nineteen a really juicy panel of just them facing off against each other. So you know, the super adaptoid got a really great feature in this comic. I just don't know if he, I don't know, he he's got enough uh, uh, of interest as a character for for me to want him to stick around. Uh, Tristan, did you think it was a poetic fate for the super adaptoid here? Uh, well, it's, it was kind of a rote fate in that he has to be defeated, but um, it's also made clear that he's not been truly defeated and that mankind has not heard the last of <laughs> the adaptoid right before the big splunch. And then the big surprise at the end, the mimic has lost his powers, at least temporarily. Uh, and we will not see him back in an X-Men book for a long time. So we've had a lot of really good conversations about him. He does come back. He is a relatively known character, if not, you know, most people's favorite. Uh, but seeing him lose his powers and being off the team uh, where he, you know, we're just getting used to him. He's been around for three issues, uh, a, a total of five. Uh, it's, uh, I don't know. Are you guys going to miss the mimic? I, I know. Oh, go ahead. All right. Go for it, Ines. Um, I like the Mimic's character. I think he's very interesting. I like his power set. I wasn't completely clear on how or why he lost his abilities. I'm guessing it has something to do with the scan that the Super Adaptoid tried to do on him and how he was almost turned into a robot but didn't quite. I don't I really get it. But I thought it was really cute how his wings slowly shrunk until there were like little itty bitty wings and then he just fell down. That was adorable. <laughs> Yeah, the uh, it's almost like their powers canceled the canceled each other out. Uh, like they they both reverted to their original templates uh, somehow. Tristan, what did you think of the the the? Or will you miss the mimic? Um, I will not. I wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, the last few panels uh, because those. Um, I don't understand what was going through the mimic's head there. He he comes entirely around on. Um, on everything that he's done in the issue so far, I guess because he got into a fight with the super adaptoid and he's maybe shown some humility, but he then goes, um, and this is, a, this is a quote, it took an inhuman emotionless thing like the super adaptoid to make me realize the true value of the emotion called friendship. <laughs> and I, I, maybe it's just because these are handled in the, in, in, in 
this is wrapped up in two panels at the end where we got um we got so much of the mimic just being a terrible jerk early uh, early on i don't understand where where this uh, where this came from i uh you know if we put it in terms of uh, bipolar disorder it is possible facing the defeat that he has and the idea of his powers being gone that it's triggered kind of a depressive episode and we see him being really mm. rough on himself as a result uh I mean, right before that quote you quoted, he says out loud, I was a self-centered, glory-hungry fool who didn't deserve such power. And we could read that with a voice of arrogance or a voice of, uh, you know, him putting a lot of pressure on himself. Uh, he is not a man who handles failure well. Uh, to answer my own question, I will not miss the mimic. <laughs> I do think he's a fun character from time to time, but not someone I need to see on my team regularly. Uh, but I am fond of him just not his costume his costume in this in this issue is absolutely horrible uh, we also we also see the super adaptoid on the final page uh say uh he's falling into the river he's lost his powers and he says it can't end this way not after i have savored the sweet scent of life uh what do you guys think the fragrance of the sweet scent of life is it smells like his man cave where he was doing a staycation before they busted in on him <laughs> I can't top that. That that's my answer. <laughs> that is yeah. That is a perfect answer. There's no way of getting around that. Uh, while we're covering our final thoughts in the uh, in the chat, if you guys are able to, I uploaded an image there. So take a look when you have time in just a second. Uh, what was your overall impression of this book? Is there something uh, that really stood out to you as a, as a favorite moment, or something that you really learned about the X Men mythos? Uh, anybody that had a favorite moment they'd like to share? My favorite moment was obviously Bobby being able to be himself and skate and twirl and run circles around the Super Adaptoid when the, in their first encounter. I thought it was a very good highlight moment for me. My favorite was Iceman uh, being just free on the ice. Uh, everybody leaves and he can be himself and, and just twirl and skate. It made me happy. Same. I am bizarrely intrigued by the super adaptoids incarnation in this issue um that like i said that moment where he's just sitting on a, sitting on his throne in the man cave until uh until scott causes an earthquake that makes uh dust rain down on his head it's like i don't know why he went there and i really want to know what he was doing there what was his end goal what would have happened if 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 scott hadn't chose that moment to just to cause that earthquake would he still be sitting there brooding on that throne that he apparently built in these old tunnels um <laughs> I th the super i think the super adaptoid might be best understood as just a baby he doesn't understand very much about this world he's been given these uh biological imperatives that he doesn't question um and he really knows he he knows very little he doesn't understand people he doesn't understand how to persuade them to to do what he wants he doesn't even make an attempt to uh, to sell them on the on the uh on the project of uh of becoming a template for him and even when he, even when he um like walks out onto the ice. We didn't talk uh, about this moment. He just, he crashes right through because he has no idea what the ice is. Um, and he's just, uh, he's just a baby. He's just learning about the world. And I kind of want to follow that version of him. 
He is uh, next, for those that want to track his continuity, uh, he is next in Avengers number 45. Uh, that's the book he most frequently appears in, is the Avengers over the years. Uh, he's shown up about 60 times. He's a relatively used vision, uh, vision uh, villain, I mean. The Mimic will next appear, uh, for those that want to see him, in The Incredible Hulk number 161. And Vera Cantor, Beast's girlfriend, also shows up there with him. Now, we still get to see more of Vera in these old books, uh, but if you read that issue, you'll see Vera there as well. Uh, now, we're going to take a break from our next, uh, from our format next time. Instead of going to the next issue of X-Men, we're going to take a sidestep and review uh, Tales of Suspense number 49, which is one of the X-Men's first appearances outside of their own book. It does feature the whole team, but Angel is the most prominent character. And it's kind of an aerial epic battle of uh, Angel versus Iron Man. Uh, so we're going to take a step there next time. Uh, and I'll announce who our guest is in just a minute. But as you guys are our guests here, as you look at the uh, at the cover for uh, Tales of Suspense number 49, do you have any thoughts? I am oh, a little good. curious about the, um, well, it says uh, on the cover, guest starring by special arrangement with X-Men magazine, The Angel. I am a little curious about the uh, the by special arrangement. Um, <laughs> if Is that entirely uh, like uh, a fiction for the readers or is there actually some... Uh, so, so was there actually some kind of legal issue or did uh, I think, no, I think Stan Lee just had to, to make a deal with himself. I think it's just kind of a funny little blurb. Now, uh, comics, uh, the comics industry is so convoluted. I, I'm not, I was not entirely sure. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I think it's just, uh, I think it's just tongue in cheek. Now for, for our listeners, this issue that we're going to review next time does not directly come out of the issue we're facing. In fact, it happens earlier in continuity. We're just going to take some time to review it because it's a lot of fun. Uh, 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 Mike and Anas, any thoughts you wanted to share about the cover? Um, I thought, I think, okay, so Iron Man is falling down and he says, my power jets are exhausted. I'm falling. Looks like the angel has defeated Iron Man. And I think the words, the angel has defeated Iron Man, will never, ever be said <laughs> in comic book history. <laughs> and so I think that's a good first appearance and last appearance for that for those words in that order. Iron Man looks really creepy here. He's falling, his limbs are all outstretched, and his head's slightly cocked. Uh, there's something eerie about that image for me. Yeah, that's a disturbing pose, I have to say. But I guess I was dissecting that pose really quick when you share this, and I guess they want to convey that he's incapacitated in some way. So it's, they put him in that really awkward position, but having him in the foreground, um, you know, positions him as the protagonist of the story and you, we get an insight to his inner thoughts, having Angel in the background and then highlighted with that black thick arrow pointing down on him, um, you know, signifies that Angel's the antagonist for the issue. And um, yeah, he looks pretty cool. Although I, we all know that, He's not that cool. <laughs> as we uh, as we conclude this podcast today, you guys, let me let me just say uh, what a, what an absolute pleasure to uh, to join with you guys and to uh, I, I keep using the word guys. That's a habit of mine. Uh, when I use that word, I mean it very gender nonspecific. I know others that hear that hear it as gender specific. My apologies. Uh, uh, I should I should correct that habit. Uh, we have two people here using they/them pronouns, and I want to be very careful with my with my gender selection. 
uh, in my language. Uh, as, as we as we join together, though, there's something about communing with uh, with fellow nerds and professionals and people who are uh, creatives. These issues stand out to me. I will I will never forget this conversation that we had in relation to these characters in this issue. Uh, uh, and it I don't know it fills my heart. Thank you all for for spending your afternoon with me. Uh, as we are concluding here, let's um, let's uh, tell people what you may have coming up uh, and where people can find you on social media. Uh, Tristan, do you want to start? Sure, you can find me um, spending more time than I should on Twitter at um, Tristan Palm. It's at Tristan Palmgren. That's T R I S T A N, and P is in Peter. A L M G R E N can email me at that same address uh, at Gmail if for some reason you want to. Um, you can also check out my website um, to see um, some of the things I have out and some of the things that I have uh, uh, have coming out. Um, so like we covered, uh, Domino Strays came out last year. Outlaw Relentless uh, came out this September. And then this coming uh, spring and summer, I have... Um, X-Men Xavier's Institute novel, uh, Siege of X-41 coming out, and then a Squirrel Girl universe later on on in the summer. Thank you very much for having me. You are all delightful. Right back at you. (laughs) Uh, Mike, do you want to go next? Uh, Sure. Um, You can follow me on Instagram at excerpts. That's X underscore C-E-R-P-T-S. It's the worst handle ever. Um, and some of um, your listeners might be familiar with my page, uh, X-Men Our Family. Uh, back in 2014, I did a piece that featured the Summers family characters because I was, I've been obsessed with that family since I was a kid, especially Rachel and Scott. Um, but then I had this idea to expand um, the project a little and uh, I started drawing the House of M family featuring Magneto and his, all, his family connections. Then I did other families. And as I posted more X families on Instagram, I found that um, that's when the fans started interacting with the project and commissioning me to draw out their favorite X families or reminding me of family members that I missed. And the project has just totally exploded and increased in scope like I never would have imagined. And it's super fun. Um, I started the project right after the pandemic hit as we were all going to quarantine. And like, just to explain the mission statement of the project, cause I never, I've never verbalized it before. Um, the X-Men are a family is their catchphrase in the comics. And we all know that the X-Men are about found families and the families that you choose. Uh, this project though, takes the concept of that catchphrase and goes a lot deeper to explore um, the families that they come from. And the project asks who they're related to and how they're connected. Uh, Connections featured in the project include uh, biological parents and siblings, kids, adopted family, genetic clones, doppelgangers from like alternate realities and future timelines, and even um, their beloved pets or companions like Gambit's cats or Lockheed. And um, I've also expanded the notion of the word family to include the LGBT X-Men character community. So now it's like a fun game of collecting and cataloging all these X families. And so far we've featured almost a hundred X families on the page and followers seem to have a lot of fun identifying all the family connections. And I'm just really thankful for all the interest and participation. And uh, my finals for the project are going to end with the family that I started with, which is the Summers family. And I have some fun stuff planned for that uh, finale. Um, This is a project I do for fun 
uh, as I stated at the beginning of the podcast, I spent a lot of time uh, expending a lot of my creative energy towards my career and um, and succeeding in that. And, uh, you know, it took me uh, until the pandemic to realize I had not drawn for myself since 2014. So it's been a really healing experience to be able to just use creative energy for something that it has no pressure. And it's my favorite way to escape is with X-Men. And, you know, I just, uh, so please check it out. And if you ha any fans have any, like, you know, any family members that I might've forgotten, please contribute any before I end the project. And um, I just want to say thank you again, Chad, so much for having, um, having me on the show. This is really fun. I've never been able to connect or talk about X-Men with other X-Men fans before. So it's been such a pleasure and it's been an honor to, uh, to meet you, Tristan and Anas. And um, yeah, this has been great. Thank you so much. Uh, when Mike and I were chatting recently, uh, he was asking, how about, how about villains from the 60s books? Do they have families? And I'm like, ooh, the Locust and the Cobalt Man. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! He so yeah. I uh, those are great suggestions, by the way. They're on my to do list. I'm oh, and just excited. to say, just to anything, if you're looking for anything, I'm I'm not doing for fun, and uh, you can actually see some of my real work. Um, I do uh, experience design for live entertainment and uh, themed entertainment, so you can see some of the stuff that uh, our interactive exhibits over at. Uh, if you're a theme park follower, go to SeaWorld. We just opened up the uh, Sesame Street place over there recently. So it's a bunch of fun, inclusive games for the entire family, for all sorts of, you know, all sorts of people. So, um, yeah, that's where you can find some of the non-X-Men stuff that I do. Fantastic. And Anas? Um, I just want to chip in here and say that Mike's work is absolutely phenomenal. I'm a huge oh, thank fan you. of the art style. Uh, I have been following you for a very long time. And I remember you did uh, a podcast cover for the X Reads podcast, I believe. Oh yeah, I love that, those guys. Yeah, and I, that's when I discovered your work and I've been following you since then. I'm obsessed with your art style. It's so unique. It gives me Cartoon Network slash Disney vibes. And a lot of the characters that you do are so adorable. I mean, you've oh. done some of my favorites like Fenris. You've done uh, Jonathan the Wolverine. You've done Excal. <laughs> adorable stuff. So honestly, y'all should all really just go follow Xers because beautiful work thank um, you so much <laughs> my absolute pleasure i will definitely be commissioning you for something for nick and i later in the future because me too <laughs> yay i love uh, collaborating with you guys so please bring it we're, we're more than happy to uh as for myself i am a co-host of the geekable podcast with my good friend nick we um we cover all things comic books and geek stuff. We interview some amazing creators like Lydia Williams and Kelly Thompson, Tina Grace, uh, Bob Quinn. And we most recently had the Geekable Awards, which was our first annual award show where we gave out some shout outs to some of our favorite comics of the year and some of our favorite creators. And it's just, a, you know, a ton of fun. Nick and I have conversations with good friends, such as Chad, who will hopefully be coming on our show sometime soon. Uh, so you can follow us at geekable underscore podcast and we're available wherever podcasts can be enjoyed. Uh, and then as for me, I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos, but my name is Chad Anderson. You can find me on Gray Malkin P, P like podcast on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm regularly posting uh, uh, images from the comics 
Uh, we're having costume contests, doing fun things like that. And we've got some really amazing guests lined up. You guys, we have professionals booked all the way till the end of March for recording. And I uh, am so thrilled uh, and nerding out uh, constantly. Uh, we also have some really fun uh, jury stuff coming up. The Juggernaut trial is going to be epic. Uh, so tune in in just a couple more weeks uh, when we uh, have that ready. Uh, and Tristan, if I'm not uh, mistaken, you're going to be rejoining us for the Juggernaut trial, correct? That's right. Looking forward to it. It's going to be crazy. I'm so excited. Uh, I work my ass off. So <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, now, as for Gray Malkin, we're going to be back uh, next week with uh, the Tales of Suspense 49 issue. And uh, Tristan, one of your colleagues is going to be joining us, uh, Dr. Robbie McNiven, who has written uh, uh, a novel uh, featuring prim most prominently the character Anol, who is a gay X-Men character. Uh, and I'm super excited to talk to uh, Robbie yes. next week. Tristan, are you and Robbie good friends? Uh, well, we know we know each other on Twitter. Um, I, um, I we started writing for uh, for Aconite books um, that that started around the uh, around when the pandemic started. So there has not been much of a chance to get out and meet each other at cons or anything, especially when there's um, an ocean between you, right? <laughs> yes, but um, but uh, but I know but um, Robbie's book uh, First Team, uh, starring Anoli, is. Um, is wonderful. You should definitely read it. Um, I was uh, I was uh, happy to be able to um, to take an Oli into uh, into Siege of X forty one coming out this May as well. Uh, X forty one. Any connection to X fifty one? Who's the Machine Man? Uh, I originally wanted the title to be uh, Station X forty one. So um, well. So no, uh, there is no connection. I'm not surprised to find out that there is uh, something with a similar name uh, somewhere uh, somewhere in, in the uh, in the Marvel uh, Marvel cosmology. Marvel Marvel has a famous robot uh, character who's a hero named Machine Man, and his robot name is X51. So you'll probably get that question a few times. <laughs> I will brace for it. Thank you. <laughs> you guys, what an absolute pleasure. Thank you again uh, uh, so much. Uh, happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Whatever you celebrate. Uh, I hope you have the most wonderful uh, vacations and times uh, off with your family. Uh, happy New Year. Um, and uh, I, I just thank you all so much. Uh, Tristan, in particular, for being here with us and sharing your afternoon with me. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. With that, we will uh, wrap up for this.